Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a very special episode of the Late Late Capitalism Why Show. Why is Dean laughing already? I'm sorry, I don't He's know. having a great time. Jeff made a fucked up noise and freaked me <laughs> out. because I was trying to deep throat the microphone. <laughs> That's right. It's Jesse. Uh, the microphone deep throated to my right is Chance. The laughing boy is Dean. And Megan, since you uh, were proper and, and nice and, and quiet and good in the intro, you can introduce Thank yourself. You. Yeah, I'm Megan, and uh, we're going to swear in this episode, so... Watch out for that. We already <laughs> Stay did. Frosty. That's right. This Fun. is a, a continuation of our multi-part foray into the world of the Quebec biker scene in the 1990s and early 2000s. Before we get started with the next part of the story, it might be helpful for you folks in the room and you folks at home if we did a quick recap. So I'm going to sum this up quick. We'll do questions and then we'll get into the, the new information. Also, I'm going to peel back the curtain quick for a bit. We um, we were talking about like, oh, maybe we should all record the first one together and then like record the next one separately maybe uh, just because we weren't sure if people would be interested or how this would turn out. And then like right after we recorded the first one, we were like, okay, we're definitely doing this all yeah, together because no, I'm very invested in this story. And today especially... The episode we're going to cover is the bulk of the war itself, and it is incredibly wild. But let's backtrack a bit and just give everybody a bit of context. So we started part one by looking at Quebec post quiet or post October crisis in still the midst of the Quiet Revolution. So we're looking at the sixties and seventies to begin with, and as we discussed, kind of this cultural shift, we took note of the beginning of the outlaw biker subculture in Quebec in the 1960s with one dominant group. Does anybody remember what that group was called? The, the, what? The Hells Angels. The well, Nomads. Not quite. Hard Rockers. The rockers. They started Rock off. Rollers. As the Popeyes? That's the first right. Yeah. Oh, the very first one. Oh, so this sorry. is the 1960s. The Popeyes become the dominant group when the and Hells the Angels. olive oils came in. That's right. They feed it yeah. with, <laughs> with the Bluto's. <laughs> there was a lot of train track tying. It was fucked up. <laughs> But once the Hells Angels decided they wanted to expand into Canada in 1977, they said, hey, you guys are doing pretty well. Do you want to patch over? Do you want to become Hells Angels? They said, yeah, absolutely. So in 1977, the Hells Angels are officially incorporated in Quebec, the first Canadian chapter. 1979, they get so big, they split into two chapters, North and South. By 1985, the North chapter are just such unrepentant fuck-ups that the South chapter kills them. And now there is one dominant chapter. And a young man by the name of Maurice Mom Boucher sees the brutality of the Lennoxville massacre in 1985 and says, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. And when he's released from prison in 1986, he joins the Angels and quickly rises the ranks. Our last episode ended off with Boucher taking full control of the Angels in Quebec and beginning what would become the Quebec Biker War. Essentially, he told all the independent drug dealers or anybody that wasn't working for the Hells Angels in the criminal underworld, all right, either work for us or die. People that refused, well, he decided to show that he wasn't just issuing idle threats. So he had three of his guys walk into a Montreal motorcycle custom shop, kill Pierre Doust on July, uh, I believe, 18th, 1994. And that kicked off what would become the Quebec Biker yeah. Wars. And all of this started by a weird barbecue dad looking sort of schlubby yes. loser <laughs> named mom. Yeah, exactly. He is one of the most average looking guys you could ever picture. Yeah. He has a like round kind of almond like face, a bit chubby, not an intimidating man. Not whatsoever. Like at all. He wears round frame glasses. He has like a weird Elton John vibe to him. I also found a, a courtroom sketch of him that will be 
the artwork Excellent. for this episode nice. where he looks like he's melting like he <laughs> <laughs> he looks like, like a, a wax he figure. looks like a giant blob so oh i'm very God. excited to you share know that with everyone what year that sketch was from no idea okay i'll try to find it because if it's if it's 2000 absolutely if it's 1997 still funny but he's not quite at scarface you know <laughs> levels of decline at that point so from part one there's only three names you really need to remember maurice boucher who is kind of the central character in this entire story. Danny Kane, he was the bisexual undercover informant in the Hells Angels. A lot of what I'm going to tell you is directly from his reports and accounts. And then the third name is more of a secondary character, but an important one nonetheless. Celine Dion. Oh, if only. <laughs> uh, Vito Rizzuto, who's the leader of like the organized mafia uh, mm-hmm. outfit in Montreal. Uh, so those are the only three names you really need to remember because almost everybody else from part one that isn't in part two is because they have been killed or they are in jail. True. And let me tell you, we are going to meet a wild cast of characters in part two, probably the wildest cast in the entire series. Okay, so we're going to pick our story up about a year into the biker war. This is now August 9th, 1995. We're actually going to start off with an event that would probably be the most consequential in the entirety of the war. Let me set the stage for you. So the Angels at this point are a year into their war with the Alliance to fight the Angels. Just mm-hmm. going to call them the Alliance, which is comprised of the Rock Machine, the Peltier Clan, and our favorite, the Dark Circle. The Dark Circle. A group of wealthy Montreal businessmen that have ties to the organized crime world. They serve as the main financial muscle for the Alliance. August 9th, 1995, an independent drug dealer by the name of Mark Dubay was killed by a bomb planted in his Jeep. Tragically, the shrapnel from the bomb would hit an 11-year-old boy, Daniel DeRoche, who would die a few days later from his injuries. Mm. Oof. Now, no one was ever officially charged for this bombing. In fact, they weren't even really sure which side planted the bomb. Here's what Danny Kane told the police what he believed happened. So, essentially, Maurice Boucher and his right-hand man at the time, a man by the name of Scott Steinert, they wanted to essentially create sympathy for the angels by killing off a drug dealer who was affiliated with them in like really brutal fashion to make it look like, oh, the other side is escalating this war. These are the bad guys. You know, we're just trying to do our thing. So he essentially told Steinert, I don't care how it gets done. I want this to be brutal and I want this to send a message. And Kane believes Steinert himself is the one who planted the bomb because in the days after this bombing, when this was like the biggest story in Quebec, mm-hmm. Steinert, who's normally like, coked up and super like arrogant you know just a big piece of shit was like really quiet and like well you know who's to say who planted the bomb yeah (laughs) acting super suspiciously so according to danny kane scott steinert is the man who planted this bomb and you're thinking oh that's gonna you know this guy's gonna serve some hard time for this Mm -hmm. keep that in mind keep in mind that scott steinert was believed to be the one who planted this bomb for the rest of this story right so in the aftermath of the killing of Mark Dubay and the killing of Daniel DeRocher, the Quebec police, the Montreal police, and the RCMP would start to work together on a joint task force called Operation Carcajou. Okay. Sorry? What I know does that I had mean translated? Operation Wolverine. Okay, okay, cool. Carcajou, which I actually used the Google like speech thing to figure no. out how to pronounce this, <laughs> and it is just Carcajou, <laughs> is the French word for Wolverine. So something I touched on very briefly in part one is the fact that the Montreal police especially were one of the most corrupt, if not the most corrupt police outfit in Canada. Well, up until 1995, you could get away with that level of corruption. But when an 11-year-old boy is killed in a very blatant ongoing biker war, they're like, okay, (laughs) 
guys. Yeah. <laughs> we got to do something here. You have the Sorek de Quebec, the Montreal Police, and the RCMP. These are your three primary players in Operation Carcajou. Many of uh, Montreal's police officers were on the payroll from both the Hells Angels and the Alliance. Mm. In fact, they were clearing up to two to three times as much weekly on payroll from these gangs than they were on their police salary. Oh, okay. So if a cop nowadays makes like $80,000 a year, these guys could be making like $120,000 to $150,000 a year just being paid off like cops. Jeez. Individual cops being paid by these gangs to oh look the other way. Mm. In fact, obscene amount of money being made. When I tell you the figure they made in 2000 alone, you're going to lose your mind. (laughs) This level of corruption went all the way to the top. The number one detective and the man in charge of Operation Carcajou from the Montreal Police, a guy by the name of Benoit Roberge. You may or may not have heard his name before. There was actually a fifth estate (laughs) short done on him talking Mm -hmm. about how fucking corrupt he was. He had a direct relation to Maurice Boucher. Like, Boucher himself basically would pay this guy off. Oh, my God. Both for information about potential informants within the gang and to look the other way. And this continued even as Operation Oh, my God, that's so dangerous. Imagine agreeing to be an informant with the police and then they just turn around and tell your boss, like, that you're an informant. Holy fuck. As a matter of fact, that's why Danny Kane, even though he was working with the Crown, would not tell any information to Montreal police officers Mm. or detectives. He straight up told the RCMP, if you tell these guys I am an informant, I will be killed. Mm. Mm. Right, right. Good for him for being that smart to (laughs) to know that. (laughs) Well, I think... If you're in the middle of that, you cannot be ignorant of the amount of yeah. corruption going on around you. You got to be like, all right, man, time out. It's also stuff like this that makes you go like, literally, what is the point of a police force? Like a city police force where they're not doing anything about the many biker gangs in the city. So like, cool. Oh, That's all Glad safe. you exist. Yeah, they're keeping us safe. <laughs> Safety first, baby. Yeah. There was another big problem, which actually just came from the judicial framework in Quebec. So you had... Uh, 84 crown attorneys in Montreal. They had four secretaries total to handle all the paperwork from these numerous biker crimes and investigations. Mm. Making matters worse, these guys and gals were criminally underpaid, like ridiculous. They were the lowest paid public, like crown attorneys in all of Canada by a wide margin. Also, these positions are well known and the police didn't provide any protection for the families of these Jesus crown attorneys when they were right. trying to prosecute these wow. bikers. So those God. those were public positions then. Absolutely. Like, oh, holy fuck. And another thing as well is they wouldn't So this is the mid 1990s. Computers exist. They are a thing. They would not allow them to use computers. They had to do all this paperwork by hand. What? I don't know why. They just did not have computer integration. We're like the well, like there's parts of the government that still haven't even Quebec figured like out software. Free, like, like, oh, there's ghosts. It's going to steal things. my No, souls. it's just that it's publicly funded. <laughs> it takes them ninety years to log on to a computer to start something. So they look at like <laughs> pictures of the suspects, and they're like, "I can't believe they've done this to the board. <laughs> How did we put them in the little box? <laughs> it seemed very inhumane to me. I put his picture on the screen, and he cannot breathe in there. <laughs> if we have computer Computers, we have to pay all the gnomes in order to run the images on the screen. Now, making matters even worse. So you have corruption. You have judicial, let's say malpractice in the way that they A, paid their attorneys, and B, provided no protection from them in very public prosecutions of major biker and underworld figures. Operation Carcajou was deeply hampered by the political context of Quebec and the federal government at the time. This is something I found very fascinating. 
So from 1994, which is predating Karkaju, but still when they were doing these ongoing investigations of the biker war, until even 2003, Quebec was governed by the Parti Québécois, which was the separatist wing of, you know, Quebec's essentially like federal arm. Their, their entire thing was they wanted to be a separate sovereign nation. So the Parti Québécois and relations between Ottawa and Quebec City were, let's say, difficult at the best of times. Things got ugly. Essentially, the Parti Québécois blamed the Liberal Prime Minister Jean Chrétien for uh, not putting frameworks in place like RICO laws so they could better prosecute the bikers, whereas Jean Chrétien looked at the biker war as justifying federalism, saying, well, if we leave Quebec to govern on their own, this is just going to be a routine occurrence all across the province. Mm -hmm. Mm. So these two sides were completely unable to work together. The Quebec like provincial wing could not work with the like Ottawa's federal government because they just hated each other mm. and they needed this war to justify each's position. Right. One that Canada doesn't have Quebec's best interests in mind because they won't help put laws in place to end this biker war. And then for Ottawa, they were like, well, what the fuck? We're not going to let you guys have your own country yeah, if this like is what's happening. Even, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Put away like 50 guys. Like it was incredibly fraught and tense politically at this time. And it was this perfect storm of corruption, malpractice, and political tension that allowed this biker war to rage in the public for as long as it did and escalate to the places it went to, as you're going to find out. Yeah, so I'm sorry. So an 11-year-old being killed by shrapnel is not the worst place that this goes to? It becomes even more like public and ridiculous. I would say the murder of Daniel Rocher is probably the most singularly dark moment in this story because... It was an 11-year-old boy that was killed in a playground by an exploding Jesus jeep. Christ. Mm. And when they were doing the investigation, they were like, there's no way the person who planted this bomb could not have seen that there was a playground across yeah. the street. Like, it was willful and it was intentional. Mm. And once again, nobody was ever officially charged, but Danny Kane, the RCMP's number one uh, informant on the inside. And the most reliable source of information, for the most part, was like, it's yeah. definitely this guy. He, mm. again, was talking about a schlong at Great Lake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, in between calling up detectives to tell them about the stripper he just railed, he'd yeah. be like, oh yeah, also Scott Steiner murdered a child. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this all happening in the 90s is really just like the perfect storm with everything that was going on politically in Quebec in the 90s. Because when I was trying to figure out background research on like, what was Quebec like? I asked some of my parents' friends who lived there and they were all just like, everything was politics all the time. Like mm -hmm. I literally was like inundated constantly with like, is like separation going to happen yeah. and language laws and everything. And it was just like so tense They had all multiple the time. referendums on yeah. separation yeah. in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. It wasn't, the one in the 80s passed by like, it was narrowly defeated by like 1% of the vote Jeez. as well. And that was also the, like in the early to mid 90s was around the same time that I believe a lot of like townships would be considered like purely French. Mm. Right. So like the idea right now where it's like if you're an English speaker, don't go to these places mm. because like they hate Anglos type of deal. Like that was kind of coming out and coming to fruition and getting stronger and stronger at, in the 90s too mm -hmm. because of the whole um, separatist movement. And I want to flash back and connect to what we began part one with, that anecdote about Maurice Boucher's popularity where he attends the fights at the Bell Center and he's treated with you know, rapturous ovation. I think you can tie some of that into the political tensions at the time where you had one man who was waging a war for what he believed was right, even though obviously it wasn't, but it was like, 
there were people that believe like, yeah, you know what? Fuck the rest of Canada. Like this is our guy. He's fighting against the police. He's fighting against like corrupt wings of the Quebec judicial system. He's mm-hmm. fighting against children. The federal judicial system as well. Like they saw this guy as being a crusader against Quebec's notoriously fucked up and <laughs> incompetent judiciary, as well as to an extent, the RCMP and the Canadian system as yeah, well. I, I would even say, like, especially when you have that like really tense political atmosphere, just someone doing something. <laughs> anything. Anything. Like mm-hmm. if it's like if someone is enacting change that you can see, that's attractive, even if it is horrible. And I should note that nineteen ninety five was also a big point when a lot of public sentiment did start to shift. Like, although obviously he still had people that treated him like a hero afterwards, the biker war and the bikers, they lost a lot of any kind of like mainstream public support, at least for that two year period. Yeah. Where people were like, what the fuck? Stop killing children. (laughs) Uh, And you know what? They would stop killing children, but trust me when I say they did not stop killing each other. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to 1996 now. And bear in mind, like, once again, it's not that nothing is happening in between these, but I have highlighted the most important moments in these years yeah. just for the sake so like of what, brevity. Just for like a, a sense of scale, like how many attacks are we talking about like on an annual basis during these wars? I mean, a lot of it is just shooting between bikers. Right. But like you'd be seeing dozens of incidents a year. Like yeah. the police paperwork was always clogged up. And every single day you'd have drug deals going down, mm-hmm. people being shaken, shaken down for, you know, extortion. Uh, loan sharks beating people up. Like, you'd see tons of assaults, everything related to organized crime. Yeah. And that's just the bikers. You then also had the mob also doing all these things at the same time as well. Right. It was, a, Montreal especially, was just very fraught. Mm-hmm. So, 1996 is a very bad year for the Alliance in particular. The Angels still have a lot of manpower, a lot of money, and a lot of influence. And to make matters worse for the Alliance, one of their main figures, one of the guys who led the Peltier clan, which is one of the two like muscle outfits, he would actually turn crown informant. So another guy just like seeing the sinking ship and being like, all right, I'm out. Here's mm-hmm. all the murders I did. Please help me. Mm. So the Alliance loses one of their big like muscle essentially now they just have basically the rock machine other little independent drug dealers in the dark circle but the peltier clan boom non-factor out of the scene yeah that's a bad sign (laughs) because the angels are not getting weaker that being said 1996 also was the year scott steinert had some big problems so i'm going to give you a bit of background on steinert now the man who allegedly orchestrated the murder of Mark Dubay and Daniel Desrochers, the 11-year-old boy. He was from uh, Milwaukee originally, but he moved to Montreal as a kid. So, like, he's been living in Quebec for the better part of 20 years. From the most years. powerful uh, place in America to the most powerful place <laughs> <That's> in <Canada. right. laughs> Now, funnily enough, Steinert never bothered to apply for citizenship, despite the fact that he'd lived in Canada for over two decades. Jesus. Right, I know, right? <laughs> and it's not like there's any reason for it. They literally just say he was too lazy yeah. to go and fill out the forms. I buy that. And I'm yeah. like, absolutely, of course that's true. That's classic. Despite the fact that he is not a naturalized citizen, this man is making the most of his life in Canada. He actually becomes like Montreal's top pimp. And it's like a horrible, horrible field. And this is not mm-hmm. to denigrate sex workers, but like this is a man who is a biker who you is can denigrate pimps. Trafficking yeah. women. Say, yeah. we, we love sex workers. We hate pimps. Yeah, yeah. we hate bosses of all kinds. Exactly. Yeah. He was known as like one of the most violent and like unpredictable people in the organized crime world. Imagine working for that. Yeah. Wonderful. 
Steinert also employed one of the largest, meanest, and dumbest men the Hells Angels have ever seen. A man by the name of Donald Bam Bam Magnuson. Oh, like the Flintstones baby. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, is with these family dynamics in the <laughs> fucking biker community? So this is one of my favorite sentences from the book. This is a line that has stuck with me since I originally read it. Magnuson's stupidity worked against him as an informant. Uh, worked against him as an informant became convinced that nobody could be as stupid as Magnuson was, so he must be an <laughs> undercover cop. <laughs> to underscore this uh in may of 1996 the angels in quebec were meeting with a group of bikers from the prairies that wanted to essentially expand so you'd have a hell's angels chapter in like fucking saskatchewan yeah actually i think this was winnipeg yes the Los bravos a winnipeg biker gang uh so they meet with you know boucher and steiner and they do like the classic biker party thing but during this party uh bam bam gets into a fight with one of the leaders of this gang it just fucks him up and basically yeah. blows the deal all together they're like fuck like no we're not going to join your group you're like six foot eight man child just beat the shit out of us <laughs> what the hell so that was actually a major deal though boucher was like you can't do this. Like you are a liability. You know what happens to liabilities. So he basically told Steiner, get him under control or there's going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. Now the police, they understand that Steiner isn't like he never got his citizenship. So they're working to deport him. Yeah. Which is actually a pretty smart solution. If you can't bust this guy for charges, you can at least get him out of the country for affiliating with known criminals. Right. The crown begins working on his deportation case. In 1997, Steinert being the genius that he is, instead of laying low and doing what Boucher asked and getting himself under control, uh, Steinert would assault and beat the son of Vito Rizzuto nearly to death. Leonardo Rizzuto was also a mafiosi. Yeah. And a made man. Oh, Oh, good. Christ. That's a good target. Essentially, uh, Vito Rizzuto would request that Scott Steinert be killed as punishment. So Mm. Boucher's got that weighing on his mind now. As the Steinert saga is playing out, the Angels would actually start the next major escalation of the war. So they began the war by targeting street-level drug dealers and other biker gangs. They decided they wanted to escalate things, and as a response to Operation Karkaju cracking down on them, they were going to crack back on various government employees. Specifically, two correctional officers. Mm -hmm. In September... Uh, or sorry, June of 1997, uh, correctional officer Diane Levine was gunned down by a Hell's Angel. In September 1997, there was a prison transport van uh, driven by two correctional officers, Pierre Rondeau and Robert Corveau. The Hell's Angels literally rode up alongside them on motorcycles and shot the drivers of this prison transport. Gee, it crashed wow. into the wall. They put another couple shots into Pierre Rondeau and shot a few more times at Corvo, who would actually survive. Whoa. Wow. He was a pretty key witness in the trial that would occur. The Angels in 1997 were like, yes, it is time. We are moving up the chain. This had major consequences. In fact, if the killing of Daniel Roche was like, the most infamous moment. This might have been the most consequential because when they killed these two correctional officers, this was essentially what Operation Carcajou needed because they were like, shit, we he, we have to focus here. And mm-hmm. they would actually bring Boucher up on first degree murder charges for the death of these two correctional officers. And of course, an attempted murder charge for the death of Robert Corvo. So we're in November, 1997. 
these two sagas are playing out concurrently. Steinert and his deportation troubles. Uh, Steinert's dumb bodyguard, Bam Bam, just <laughs> beating people up and being a nuisance. November 4th, 1997 would mark the last time either Scott Steinert or Donald Magnuson was ever seen alive. Oh, okay. So here's what happened. Despite the fact that the Crown had been working for over a year to deport Scott Steinert, who, for the record, had not stopped doing crimes. Yeah. <laughs> they could not deport him. For whatever reason, they kept getting just blocked at every turn. That's when Maurice Boucher put it together that, yes, Scott Steinert was likely an informant. Oh, my God. Because there was no other way in which he would still be able to remain in the country. Yeah, yeah right. Fearing that his moron bodyguard was also a cop, and now that Steinert either was turned by Magnuson or had just gone independently on his own, they decided they needed to get rid of Scott Steinert. Mm-hmm. Mm. They took these two guys, they covered their heads in pillowcases, and they beat them to death to a bloody pulp and dumped them into the St. Lawrence River. Mm-hmm. They would be recovered, I believe, the following month with their hands bound behind their back and their faces unrecognizable. This... They were putrefied in the swamp. There was nothing left. Oh, my God. No one was ever charged for the murder <laughs> of either of these two men. Yep. Sometimes that just happens. You know when you and your buddy are walking through the swamp? <laughs> and you accidentally tie your own hands and behind your back. And then beat your faces yeah. into oblivion. Yeah, they probably didn't pre- like go too deep into it because they were like, well, we were going to get them out of the country anyway. What's interesting, though, is if you think about Scott Steinert potentially being an informant, remember, this is the man that Danny Kane, who was a confirmed informant, thought planted the bomb that killed Daniel Desrochers. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple interesting scenarios to discuss here. One, Steinert was an informant from the beginning, and if he did indeed plant that bomb, well, somebody working for the Crown just murdered a child. Admittedly, I don't think that's the case. What I think is most likely is that Steinert, in the fallout of the killing of Daniel Desrochers, realized, fuck. I'm in a bad place here. And although he wouldn't ever come clean for organizing that, I think he sought a deal to try and get himself out of a increasingly untenable situation. Yeah. I think as a result, he was given Donald Bam Bam Magnuson as his kind of like handler and protector. But obviously Magnuson, not so good at that. <laughs> right. So the Angels would also up their pressure on the Dark Circle in 1997. They had actually announced in late 97, early 98, that they would pay handsomely for any information of the identity of Dark Circle members, like $50,000 a pop. They wanted these guys, and they wanted these guys bad. So between 1998 and 1999, uh, two members of the Dark Circle were murdered by the Hell's Angels, uh, while a third escaped only because the Angels went and killed the wrong person named Surge. Oh, Jesus. Lieutenant Serge? That man's a veteran. (laughs) So they were looking for a man named Serge Bruneau. This is in 1999, but I talk about it now because this is the crackdowns on the circle. Yeah. They went to his rent-a-car business and asked, oh, is Serge in? And they said, oh, yeah, one second, we'll grab him. And a man named Serge came up to the desk and said, hey, I'm Serge. What can I do for you? And they shot him dead. Yeah. That was Serge uh, Hervaux, who was a 38-year-old father. See, this okay. is why this is the danger of being a person from Quebec because they only have five <laughs> names exactly. to go around. So if anyone does any shit and you like you all have that name, it's on your ass. Also, this is the stupidest assassination attempt ever. <laughs> yeah. hey, you got this guy here. Attempt. Yeah. They did well, kill well, someone. Yeah. Well, they killed like someone. if I go to the White House and say, Is Biden in? Or is Joe uh, in? Is, is Joe yeah, in? Is, is Joe yeah. around? Is, is Joe here? Let's remember. Uh, and this... then I do do a redacted. <laughs> 
Yeah. This is the second time they've just gone into a place and asked, is this person here? And then immediately killed them. Because when they killed Pierre Douce to start off the war, they just said, hey, is Pierre here? And he's like, oh, I'm Pierre. And they just blasted. <laughs> this is their trademark. Yeah. If a Hell's Angels asks, hey, are you this person? Say no. Say no. Uh, imagine being successfully assassinated by the Three Stooges. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking terrible. That, you, I don't even feel bad for you, dude. I'm sorry. No. Sad. That was an innocent man. It actually was an innocent. Well, man. no. Okay. I, yeah. Obviously, but normally, guy, if you're a biker and yeah. you get killed by these guys, yeah. successfully... and they're like, "Hey, are you here?" Like, <laughs> "Fuck off, you idiot." They like did a... successfully assassinate an innocent man, and that's kind of cool, though. <laughs> it's like when my friend called a bomb threat into our school, and they said, "Mark, is this you?" And he said, "No, it's not me." <laughs> like, this is the level of criminal mastermind we're working with here. In response to these increasing, just brazen murders of what the police assume were just like random people, not knowing that they were or were not Dark Circle members, they introduced something known as Project Harm, which is a widespread crackdown on all crime-affiliated bars and restaurants in the city, which is uh, all of them. (laughs) Yeah. This crackdown eventually led to charges against Boucher, those charges being the first-degree murder of Diane Levine and Pierre Rondeau. So... Directly because of their war with the Dark Circle, they managed to get the information they needed to finally put Boucher on trial. Mm-hmm. And who would Boucher hire as his lawyer? But a man named Robert... Rudy Giuliani. Close. A man named Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> a man with what would be a similar provincial profile to what Rudy Giuliani would have had in New York. Yeah. Robert Lemieux, who oh. famously defended the FLQ bombers in their trial. Wow. Classic. Another Classic. nice little was political that connection. The guy there, like the FLQ bombers lawyer, was like <laughs> the stuff I was reading about him was very funny. He was full on board with the FLQ. He like pushed yeah. for their manifesto to be aired, like because that was one of their demands and yeah. everything. And so he would just go out and read it to everybody. Like it was a lot. <laughs> he was a very <laughs> public figure during that crisis. And surprise, surprise, he became a very public figure during the trial of Maurice Boucher. So 1997 marked the most bloody, like the bloodiest year of the war. 27 murders related to the biker war in 1997 alone. Oof. That is just 27 biker homicides. Canada, like areas in Canada sometimes don't get 27 homicides in like two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. The violence would only worsen as we approach the halfway point of the war. And this is all still mostly in Montreal, right? Or is it like sort of province-wide? Primarily, but there was violence in other areas Just of Quebec, like Sherbrooke. Being uh, like a, a restaurant owner in Montreal at the time would have felt so fucked up. Like, oh my God. It would have be been like good for your life. Yeah. Or or like the Sopranos. Like, you know what you're doing and you're mm-hmm. you're essentially a hotbed for What if you just wanted crime? to like open a falafel shop? You're well, just too bad fucked. you're going to be offered <laughs> security. Yeah, yeah you will either so. pay extortion or you will be killed. Yeah. yeah. So 1998, the first half of it at least, was probably the most kind of low-key year of the war, mostly because Boucher was on trial at this point. So they're like, okay, we got to throttle back here a bit. Mm. That being said, the first real major spurt of violence actually came from the rock machine, and it wasn't directed against the Hells Angels. On August 23rd, 1998, a team of rock machine killers consisting of Frederick Fauché, a man whose name you'll hear a little bit more later on, Gerard Gallant, and Mar- Marcel Demare rode by on their motorcycles Okay, they all down. have... Like matching first name, last name letters. Fauché, Gallant, except for Demare. 
but the second half of their last name, if you ignore the D. Okay. That's my own name. But like D Megan, is sort of separate. Ignore the M, the H, the A, and the N in your name and just like think about the E. But if you think about it, <laughs> D E is removable. You just got owned. And then you're like, but if you think about <laughs> Anyhow. it. Anyhow. Think about it. The E is the most important part. I thought it was part. fun. Alrighty. <laughs> they do have very, there is like a cadence to their names though. I respect yeah. that. I appreciate it. It's because they're French. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that Japanese uh, baseball game where they made American names for people. Oh, Steve yeah. McDykel. Yeah. <laughs> Steve McDykel. That's the one. <laughs> that's a classic. So they decide, the rock machine, that they're not on good terms with the Rizzutos right now. So they go and gun down Paolo Catroni, who was a member of the Catroni family. Oh, sorry. No, they, they wanted to get into the Rizzuto family's good books, so they kill an opposing mobster, Paolo okay. Catroni. Bye-bye, sweetie. Yeah, the rival mafia family, basically. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, Vito, you like what we did, eh? Eh? Took care of a rival for you. And also partially because Paolo Catroni was actually a good friend of Maurice Boucher. So this is okay. two birds, one stone for the rock machine right, right, this yeah. time. On September 8th, 1998, Johnny Plessio, a founding member of the rock machine, was shot dead in his home as retaliation for the murder of Catroni. At Plessio's funeral, a flower arrangement bearing the word Banditos was the first sign that the Banditos biker gang of Texas was taking an interest in the rock machine. Mm. Oh, shit. Now, we're going to talk about the Dark Circle having a very bad time. Right. Disaster struck the Dark Circle. Punishing my Dark Circle. When, <laughs> so, that's right, the brown, the brown spot. <laughs> yeah. Salvatore Brunetti, a restaurateur, owner of a bar and drug dealer extraordinaire defected to the Hells Angels and gave them a list of the remaining names of the Dark Circle members. Oh, Wowzers. <laughs> yeah, bad news. What made him do that? Uh, essentially, he's like, well, he watched you know, the death of Surge and all the other murders that took place in the prior years and was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. The, such a common thread in this is that there is absolutely no honor. Yeah, no. <laughs> among yeah, everyone's stabbing no loyalty back. whatsoever. Everybody is snitching at the first sign yeah. of distress. And you could say, yes, high stakes, absolutely, because there were. A lot of this was life and death, but you see like a disturbing amount of flipping. There's like mm. 10 informants that I just haven't talked about because they just aren't relevant. You know what, <laughs> you know what it might be too, though, is that it, it's such a, even though it's been almost 40 years since the beginning of like biker gangs mm. in Montreal and Quebec, that's still pretty young for like an organized crime syndicate. Yeah, that's you true. You know what I mean? So like they don't have that established loyalty. Th- these are just growing pains. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah a rebellious phase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go to my mom's house, the cops. <laughs> <laughs> One of the names on this list, uh, Jean Rosa, a 32-year-old businessman who lived in a middle-class suburb in Montreal, was found shot in his car in the morning of September 25th, 1998. Surprising. He would die a short time later, so he survived the shooting about five times in the back Jesus. in his car. Uh, bar owner Pierre Bastien was the next to die. He was shot point blank in his driveway in front of his eight-year-old daughter on October oh 22nd, God. 1998. To save their lives, several of the remaining members of the Dark Circle turned themselves into the police and confessed to their crimes, saying that they would be safer in prison than they would as free men. In fact, one of these Dark Circle members a few years later would be up for parole and refused it. Wow. wow. He'd rather be in jail. He's like, if I am a free man, I will be killed. Because mm-hmm. you're in too deep. That's what, that's, yeah. what, that's what happened to them. And in November of 1998, Maurice Boucher was acquitted for the two homicides of the Quebec uh, correctional officers. That's when he went to the Bell Center. 
got his rousing ovation from his hometown crowd, and was maybe the most well-known man in Quebec. How did he get acquitted? We're going to talk about that. Oh, okay. great lawyer. <laughs> I'm also, like, it, it always seems that Hell's Angels and all this stuff is so underground that you. I would wonder how the general public even finds out about, like, who's who in the Hell's Angels. But I also remember, like, reading even a brief synopsis of this. and Or in your quote, they were saying that there was, like, fanning, fawning coverage of him in the media. But, like, why? But what also, were they reporting on? Just saying, like, this guy's up for murder. He's Here's this dude who leads the Hell's Angels. He's really cool. Essentially, like, <laughs> like Boucher gave the media what they wanted, where he would pose for pictures, wave to the camera. He would always give, like, very interesting interviews. Like, he was a very charismatic guy. But it would have always been him coming out of a courthouse. Like, I don't understand why the general public would then see all that and be like, yeah, he's cool. Why was Donald Trump popular? But, like, Donald Trump released his, like, own media things. Like it's it's not Sometimes, always, but he yeah. got a lot of coverage from like major yeah. major media. Outlets. You also have to people think. like so. people who get away with it. I that's, guess that's charming. I guess that's endearing. The other thing is if you're if you're a part of any kind of bar scene or like even a server and you see like ten guys coming in wearing leather jackets every single night and then you find out this person is like the ringleader of them, like word's gonna get around, right? Like everyone's gonna know who's who. It was pretty popular to be like on the street, like you. If you were a part of a biker gang, it's not like you wear a suit and tie and blend in with everyone else. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like you kind of you kind of stick out like a sore thumb, so everyone knows what's going on. Mm. Thank you so much for listening to the Late Late Capitalism Show. This fun biker themed bonus episode. Keep an eye on the podcast feed. We'll keep updating it on Friday mornings as regular. Love you. Bye.